0: to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian.
1: Christian, how you doing? I'm feeling silly, dude, but I've been up since super early this morning. We had to wake up early to get to Rune, uh, the founder of MakerDAO. He's over in Europe, but man, it was a lot of fun to get to just talk to someone who's built such an incredible project. and. You know, you know me, I like to stick them with the tough questions, um, get them with the Bitcoiner questions. Uh, and you know, again, it was it was nice to learn about what motivates Rune, where MakerDAO is going, uh, and why they've made the decisions that they've made. Personally, it sounds very complex to me, um, and I just don't know if the monetary economics are, are going to be better than something like Bitcoin, but we'll see. And again, the... I think the theme here is the motivation and the ethos is right. And these are just different iterations to see, you know, how money is going to work. Bitcoin is a conversation about money and and MakerDAO is definitely uh, an attempt.
0: And hard to, hard to please the Bitcoiners. Uh, But yeah, I was also very excited about bringing Rune on the podcast. Uh, Anytime Rune's on a podcast, I always listen to it. Uh, But most of the time he's on something like Laura Shin explaining why, Stability is important and no offense to Laura Shin or no offense to stability, but it's basic level content And that's not exactly what we want to to do here and so we get into some of the more complex nuances of, of What it takes to produce something like MakerDAO uh, for those that have not been uh, paying close attention uh, just uh, just a f- uh, last week uh, Rune and the MakerDAO Foundation presented the plan for dissolving the foundation because what is a DAO if it has a foundation? Uh, the whole idea about a DAO is that it is decentralized. And so the, the foundation's plan to dissolve uh, has always been in the roadmap, but now that multi-collateral Dai is here, it's the, the next step is to dissolve the foundation. However, there's also some other subjects that I always had in the back of my mind that I asked Rune about. Uh, things like DAI's independence from the dollar. Uh, Die is just a price feed and you can really point that price feed to whatever you want. And, you know, the Bitcoiners uh, point at the dollar and say, well, that's not a store of value. It loses 2% every single year and they are right. And so if we want something that is a stable store of value, pegging it to the dollar isn't actually the best option. And so, If we really want independence from the dollar, MakerDAO needs to create its own stable reference point. In addition to really going into depth about the process of dissolving the foundation, we also talk about uh, what it takes for DAI to become independent from the dollar. Uh, There's some other really good kernels of of conversation, such as uh, Rune's opinion as to what uh, MakerDAO owes homage to Ether, the asset, as the native asset of Ethereum. That was a really, really cool t- conversation. And then also, what values does MakerDAO instantiate in its code? Uh, all crypto economic platforms and protocols are, are value instantiation mechanisms. And so we ask Rune what he thinks the, the values of MakerDAO, MakerDAO are. But before all of that, we need to get into our sponsors. Quantstamp is the premier smart contract auditing firm on Ethereum. And if you believe in MakerDAO and if you believe in DAI, you therefore also believe in Quantstamp because MakerDAO was a previous customer of Quantstamp. If you have ever owned DAI in any way, shape or form, uh, if you own Chai or any DAI derivative, uh, if you have a vault, if you've participated in governance, you have implicitly used Quantstamp to secure your funds in the DeFi space. Uh, QuantStamp is the premier smart contract and blockchain auditing firm in the crypto space. They have the most extensive resume of crypto projects that they have audited and made secure, the sheer amount of value that flows through DeFi projects that QuantSAMP has audited is impressive. And that is what makes them the number one smart contracting auditing firm in the crypto space. And so if you are building something on Ethereum that manages users' funds, you need to make sure that your users' funds are safe and you need somebody else to audit that code. And so go to expertaudits.com and request an audit from Quantstamp, the premier smart contract auditing firm in crypto.
1: Oh, hot fire. They need to pay you twice as much for that ad.
0: Yeah, I'm so good at Quantstamp ads, dude.
1: (laughs) Next up, you guys know who it is. It is eToro. eToro, thanks so much for supporting the podcast. eToro has been supporting Bitcoin and crypto since 2016, the very first traditional finance institution to take up Bitcoin and crypto. Um, You guys, they are a complete one-stop shop for everything you need. You can stack stats and take it off the exchange. They have great rates. Uh, If you are into trading, you can follow a trader with copy trading. You can go trade on your own. They have everything you need. And then on top of that, if you just want to do an index fund, you can do an index fund. They have everything you could could ask for. eToro is a complete one-stop shop for anything a trader and Bitcoin stacker would want. Go check out eToro at b.tc backslash eToro, P-O-V.
0: And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Rune Christensen of the Maker Foundation. Rune Christensen, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Rune, we wanted to get you on for a number of different reasons, and we asked you to come on before uh, you brought up the subject of dissolving the foundation, so we've also added that as a subject matter here in in this podcast. Uh, So, I kind of want to actually start with that, but before we get there, maybe if you can do a very expedited history of MakerDAO and how we got to where we are today where, where we are today is having the conversation of how to dissolve the foundation. Can you go all the way back to like, um, the, the story of, of you losing all your value as uh, Bitcoin drops in price in the, in the first bubble, and then starting with proto-sci, psi, and then die, and then multi-collateral die, and then now to where we are today? Keep it brief.
2: Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so so I, got into, I got into Bitcoin in 2011, uh and completely you know i was a full-blown bitcoiner um i was actually hating on eth when uh, eth was first announced kind of like a typical bitcoin maximalist being upset that that uh people were doing stuff that wasn't on bitcoin but but um um actually around that time so basically around the time when when ethereum was first announced um we had this big uh, the post mount I mean, I got in 2011, so I made a lot of money on Bitcoin, as you could imagine. But then I lost, like, I, I, I really held on even during the crashes. And the, what that meant is that at that point in time, I actually ended up losing everything I've earned throughout, um, you know, even though I was so early into Bitcoin. And so that's also, after some reflection on that, or sort of like the, the reflection, the feeling of, of gaining a lot of, of like, well, feeling like I earned a lot of money. Even though I never cashed out, and then losing all of that potential earned value, um, it's just a very, its not—it's obviously not a very nice feeling, and um, it really is the you know the reason why volatility is a problem, right? And that's what made me realize that stable coins were necessary, and that um, regular people and businesses and so on are never going to accept going through that, you know, that roller coaster of earning a lot and losing it again and, and so on, right? Um so, so what happened was that uh I yeah, soon after hating on, on Ethereum because I was a Bitcoin maximalist, I actually started to like look beyond Bitcoin and look for sta- look into stable coins. And then I first got into BitShares, which was the the well, it was essentially the first project to invent uh the decentralized stablecoin model as we know it today. Um as as well as a whole range of other features. Um but Unfortunately, BitShares just it tried to do so many things at once, so it didn't really get the traction that it needed to, to really bootstrap its stablecoin. And that's when me and a couple of others in the early BitShares community then started to then rediscover Ethereum after initially dismissing it, you know, a year earlier or so, and realized that that was actually the perfect platform to then try to just focus on building a great stablecoin. Um, because again, like one of the problems with BitChairs was trying to do so many things. So, we, so, so our, one of our core philosophies was that we were just going to do one thing. And that was going to, to you know, it's going to be making the ultimate stablecoin, as we called it. Um, so then we, uh, we got started and I, I, you know, I did a Reddit announcement back in the days and had a lot of like public discussion and all these like community things happening in the early Ethereum days, which was kind of crazy to be a part of. Um, and then and the design of the stablecoin, which was originally just a copy of, of the Bitshare stablecoin, but this design of, of, uh, of Maker and Dai then evolved. And uh, about, you know, I think something like the, the summer of, of uh, 2015, um, we arrived at essentially the design that we know today with this multi-collateralization, uh, plus like a very heavy emphasis in governance and having the governance token as a backstop um and then uh yeah we started building it this design and it turned out that it's very very difficult to build secure smart contracts and we even had things like the DAO hack which then actually made us realize it was even more difficult than we thought right you, the security is so important but uh, eventually we did manage to release uh yeah the first version of site um uh, which was uh, around summer 2017 and it, it so that was the very that was the first stablecoin in ethereum um, which ran for 6 months until we launched single collateral dai in in uh, late 2017 um and then now we finally uh, you know 2 years later arrived at having the like having the you know, that original vision that we we came up with in uh, summer 2015 for the project and actually having created all that code and actually having it launched um, and running live. So that's, it's been a very long journey. And honestly, it's it's a little bit uh, mind blowing or sort of like uh, surprising even that we actually are here now. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of crazy to have gone through all of that. Um, but it's also really amazing, I mean, because it really, at the same time, this is just the beginning, right? Now we find, now we built the basic implementation, like the basic design where we implemented that. So now we're at the beginning and we can actually start building on top of it.
1: Rune, I have a question. What is your definition of the perfect stable coin?
2: Well, so, I mean, so when we first started out, we didn't, you know, we didn't know that yet, right? So we basically, our approach was, we're going to start with, the BitShares model, which is the very simple, which is essentially single collateral die, right? So single collateralized stable um, And then we arrived at the current uh, design that we have now, right? So um, basically it is this combination of multiple collateral types and then uh, highly empowered governance that has this um, uh, new skin in the game element of having to, to cover any bad decisions that it makes.
1: Why is that better than single collateral with eth- with Ethereum or maybe another cryptocurrency?
2: Well, so it's actually a very fundamental reason, right? So it's, it's risk management, um, or even a like correlation, I guess, is an even simpler way to express it. Right. So the problem is that, and this is actually what the latest crash of March the 12th really showed, right. That the problem is that if, um. Uh, you only have one collateral type for a stable coin, then you you know if that collateral type loses a lot of value very quickly, the entire the entire stable coin runs into this balance like balancing issue where everybody wants a stable coin and nobody wants a collateral. And that means you actually have this problem of of um, of you know having enough collateral in the system to back the amount of stable coins that people are interested in, in holding. So first of all, you've run into to to peg and liquidity issues, where the stablecoin might stop being stable and might increase in value. Um, but secondly, and even worse, and luckily this didn't happen on March the 12th, right? But but this could happen in even more uh, even more um, significant drop. You could actually have the stablecoin getting um, you know completely uh, go become insolvent because the value of the collateral can, would simply fall so much that there just isn't enough collateral to back. outstanding stable points so the reason why having multiple collateral types is so critical is because then you can manage the risk of any individual collateral type right so you can make sure that you don't have this correlated risk but rather that you have uncorrelated risk right so even if ethereum drops a lot you want to have other assets in there that are not going to be dropping when ethereum is dropping right and the other way around you want to have like you want you know, Ethereum can then also be the thing that is stable when some of the other things are, are failing, right? And actually right now, uh multi-level die has achieved that um by having essentially you know Ethereum on one hand and then you have uh, USDC on the other hand. And those two assets are they're almost the perfect opposites of each other, right? They're like Ethereum has is is highly volatile and and highly decentralized, and then USDC is almost no volatility at all, right? It's almost a, a perfect one-to-one with the dollar. Um, But then it's completely centralized. So that means that the types of risks in these two assets are are just—they're completely the Um, opposite—and that actually means that they're great together, right? Because then one sort of hedges the other.
0: So we've gone through the history of MakerDAO, starting with the just the simple need for stability, and all the way into multi-collateral Dai. You talked about how. Uh, in this process you 've discovered how difficult this is, and the difficulty of producing this vision for the ultimate stable coin comes along with the need for a centralized body to execute this vision, which is has been the foundation and so uh, in the most recent governance call uh, you you 've illustrated that we have now with multi collateral die we have the uh, the implementation that that you uh, Envisioned way back at the very beginning. And so now the next phase is to dissolve the foundation, but I think um, People always understand that the foundation is the centralized body in this decentralized world and that decentralized is decentralized is good and and centralization is a risk but uh, so far so good with the MakerDAO system, right? Like DAI's been working pretty well. The foundation has has executed, you know, decisions, um, good decisions. They're the most educated people about the MakerDAO protocol. I think it, it's worth a conversation as to remind us or, or pitch, why does the foundation actually need to dissolve? Like what about uh, the foundation dissolving actually improves the MakerDAO protocol?
2: Yeah, so... I think, um, I mean, I actually think the most fundamental um, reason is just that it's basically always been the expectation, right? So, so um, and, that, and interestingly enough, when Maker started out, it actually tried to take a radically decentralized approach to, to bootstrapping the project itself. Um, but unfortunately, that just completely failed. So it turned out that it's impossible to kind of like be, like create something that's very complex and then also try to operate in a highly decentralized manner. And I think it's actually, it's actually pretty obvious when you think about it, but from the perspective of someone who was you know, very ideological and you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum maximalist and so on, it, at the time, it seemed the right choice to, to just try to be fully decentralized from the start. Um, but in practice, that, yeah, in practice, that turned out not to work. And then instead, the solution was, okay, let's have this foundation that, that um, acts as this, Um, takes this role of being the the entity that bootstraps the project but then in order you know in order for things still to to make sense and the project still to remain true to the goal of creating uh, the ultimate decentralized stablecoin uh, it's very important that the foundation in its DNA is designed to then dissolve itself right and um, uh, but I mean but there's also I mean there's a number of other Good reasons beyond just that. This is it's about like the ideology of of uh, keeping the, the project decentralized, um, because actually, as you know, as as it turns out, although I started off very ideological and so sort of the project was very ideological, it over time it went it went very much towards being maximally practical, I guess you can say, right, and actually really emphasizing what's practical over what's ideological. Um, But, I mean, one very practical reason is that the foundation doesn't have unlimited funds, right? So it can't, it it has a a fixed amount, like a finite amount of capital. Um, And the strategy has been that the foundation wants to use this capital um, very aggressively and really try to, to, um, to you know, really like bootstrap the project and really move it forward, sort of get it, get it uh, to do sort of initial jump forward, right? Like launch the protocol itself. Um, and actually originally the, 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 um, the expectation was that the foundation would dissolve immediately after launching the protocol. And then in practice, it turned out that, okay, one thing is launching the protocol. Another thing is sort of getting it up and running and really getting the, the flow going. Um, but basically the, the, you know, the idea is that the suit, like the more aggressively the foundation can use its resources, the sooner the community can reach this, you know, reach a state where the, it can become completely self-sufficient, and that's kind of the. And the second part is that it is actually like the community, a fully self-sufficient community, is actually always going to be way more powerful than a community that has some level of self-sufficiency but relies on a foundation. Um, and and that's because if by the you know the nature of being a, a you know a legal. Centralized entity the foundation has a lot of restrictions on on information flows and and just a lot of the activity that it can do um, and I even think that there is this, to a large extent there is even a like an element of um, of the foundation like because the foundation exists it actually sort of holds other people in the community back because you, you know, you don't want to do what the foundation is doing or something like that. Right and and um, and in a, in, a, in a situation where the community has full responsibility of everything and really cannot rely on some external entity to take care of anything, that's when I believe you really see the power of decentralized communities, right? You really see like the, the full um, uh, potential of you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world working together and coordinating through a decentralized protocol. And, and ultimately it's because The mega protocol has everything it needs to do everything that the foundation is doing um, at maturity. So there's simply, I mean, it's, you know, in the end, there's just, if if the protocol can take care of everything, what's the point of having a, you know, a centralized entity doing the same, it just seems like adding some extra bureaucracy, right, at that point. Mm. So, um, so yeah.
0: So what, uh, what concerns you about this transition? What are the biggest obstacles that you see coming uh, that, that prevents the foundation from, from uh, dissolving like today?
2: Well, so I think the biggest obstacle or rather the I mean, I think the most important aspect is that it has to be very gradual. And that's actually also something. So that's, this is another expectation that's been in place uh, from the very beginning that Um, the foundation is going to dissolve but it's not going to be like driving off a cliff right it's not going to be one day the foundation is there and the next day it isn't there instead it's about taking it very much step by step and and ensuring that um, the community takes over responsibilities um, and and adds complexity to the to the way that the governance processes work and so on but only at a pace that the community itself can keep up and because otherwise you could actually have a lot of, of build up of risk right you could have immature processes that don't actually work when put to the test and you could even have um yeah you just have like a lack of process or, or a sort of lack of, of um, experience dealing with issue critical issues so um striking that balance of dissolving quickly enough to ensure that the community you know grows and and, uh, and, and gets comfortable with using the tools of governance but then also not dissolving so quickly that suddenly there's a problem that, that wouldn't have existed and foundation was still there. And that's that's a really big challenge, I think.
1: Where would you say Maker is right now um, in terms of like, if, if you could be fully decentralized uh, with no foundation and it, the protocol is completely ready, like how far along that path is uh, the ecosystem right now and how long do you think it's going to take to get to where it needs to be?
2: Well, so, I mean, so the thing is that first of all, um, decentralization is actually a very, like it's a very nebulous term, right? That, that is, is um, it's like, it's actually not rooted in objective reality, right? It's rooted in like ideology and, and it's, it's quite subjective. So, um, you know, so basically for me, it means a different thing for me than it means for other people, right? But I, I, I think it, in terms of this question, I think of it in, and there's kind of two elements to it, right? So there's there is both decentralization or rather the element of decentralization that's resilience, and so that's, that's the part of like, that's the question of would the protocol stop running if the foundation disappeared, for instance, right or would, would it be very easy to like attack the protocol and, and take down the system or something without the foundation and these kind of things? And from that perspective, it's basically at this point it's, it's uh, I would say 95 percent or 99 percent at the point where the community has everything it needs to actually keep the protocol itself resilient and then certainly if the foundation you know tomorrow started just for some reason um, even you know became malicious or something right or, or just stopped doing anything uh, i have no doubt that like all the people that are already in the community they would immediately just like they would just pick up where the foundation has had left off and basically start figuring out things uh, how to sort of like um, how to keep things running, right? um, but then there's the other aspect, which is uh, decentralization of like growth and kind of like virality and also something we call critical mass. So it's basically the question of, is it possible to, like, is, is there enough of a, sort of enough energy and enough, enough of a network effect that it will automatically draw in an even bigger network over time? Um, and that's where I think right now um, the foundation still plays. Uh, like there's still a lot of processes that the that the foundation needs to to um, to help really like roll out and, and transition over into the community. But the most important one is collateral unboarding and, and allowing the system to unboard more colla- like allowing the system to unboard the community to unboard more collateral so the system can grow so that um, you know so that it actually can scale and, and can deliver if there, if like deliver it the, the stability and deliver the efficiency that's, ne- that's needed as the network effect grows over time. Um, and, uh, that's also fortunately where, um, there's been a lot of progress, uh, recently, right, because, um, the foundation just published the first set of maker improvement proposals, which are part of this, this, basically this, uh, this new governance paradigm, as we call it, where there will be no foundation anymore and instead everything will be controlled by these processes, um, by the community. And the first process that we're focusing on is, of course, collateral onboarding, because it's the most critical. So while we're not technically, we're not completely there yet, but, but we're very close to the point where the community can, can, can uh, run collateral onboarding autonomously. Um, and that's also really going to, um, you know, that's, that's going to be a big step towards the protocol, then, in a fully decentralized manner, be able to grow over time.
0: So what are you hopeful will actually improve now that the foundation is gone or once the foundation is gone? What about the maker system actually gets better uh, with the absence of the foundation?
2: Well, I think overall, it's, it's uh, scale. And um, uh, it's like the ability to, to really scale and become and be more complex. Um, because there will be so many, I mean, because there will no longer be sort of a single a single point that that sort of the different process has to go through right you'll have a lot of people who can work in parallel um, and only need to come together uh, in like through um you know through the governance process itself when it comes to ratifying decisions but all the pre i guess you can say the pre-work the pre-process all of that can really be uh, broken down into parallel processes that can then be owned by the community um and i mean also transparency right and, and uh, into what's going on that's going to be such a big difference because it's it's like it's quite hard for for the, for people um outside to the foundation to even know you know to understand what's going on in the foundation right and all the different moving parts that's happening and all the work that's being done um and that's just going to completely change in the new governance paradigm because in the new governance paradigm you will have these elected paid contributors, they're called, right? So these people that work for the protocol and that are paid by the protocol, but they will be operating in a totally decentralized manner. I mean, totally transparent manner. So they'll you know, they be reporting to the community, right? They'll be writing updates all the time. Anything they do will by default be public because there's no reason to keep it private. There's no, there's no legal legal considerations to like anywhere near the same extent that you have it with a legal entity like the foundation.
1: Rune, so I kind of want to go back a little bit to what you were saying earlier about um, right now. The the protocol itself is kind of ready to go, but the next the next kind of step of uh, of dissolving the foundation really has to rely around um, you know essentially bootstrapping the ecosystem more. Um, I like to characterize it simply as bringing liquidity to die. I think that's really like at the essence of it. Like. It, I think that it, it's a little subjective, right? Like how bootstrapped the community is. Is it ready to to let go of a central body? Um, like how are those decisions made? Like how is that, like what kind of criteria do you have around is the community ready for us to, to let it go when technically it could be ready today?
2: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, so, for, yeah, so first of all, um, This has already been discussed extensively in the in the uh, discussed as a part of this in the media community, right? And that is that the first um, critical point point is that yeah, like the foundation could disappear today, and the protocol would still run, and you know the system wouldn't be at at risk or something, right? Um, But again, it comes back to that, like, but can it achieve that virality, exponential growth, right? Like network effect. Um, And so that's where the criteria to me is that the foundation dissolving has to actually, it's very important that the foundation dissolving doesn't become like a step backwards so that there's kind of like a period of of stumbling around a bit because the foundation is gone and suddenly the growth slows down or something like that, right? So basically, um, you know, it's very important that the community's own capabilities to, to take over all the critical work that the foundation does. Has, is already in place, right? So things like, I mean, again, collateral onboarding is actually the most important one, but another, another thing is the ability to, to deploy synthetic assets um, and even things like um, uh, communications and possibly even marketing. Like you might even have decentralized marketing or something like that. Depending, I mean, that's, it's, that's still entirely up to the because it's, it's not clear whether that's actually needed or not if you just have you know, um, collateral and liquidity and, and resilience um but so that's kind of like that's sort of the objective perspective right is that that's what we need to achieve is that the foundation um like when the foundation disappears that should not there should not be any sort of critical capability that then disappears right Uh, and the way that we make sure that that's the case is then through this thing called the governance paradigm so the governance paradigm is this concept of basically a set of processes and stakeholders and an ecosystem that is completely fleshed out to the point where it can handle all the critical tasks the foundation is currently handling. Um, and we break it down into three parts. So there is, the first one is the EBCs, so the elected paid contributors. So what that essentially means is that uh, the protocol needs to be able to, to um, essentially hire and, uh, and uh, engage with uh, you know, experts around the world, that are paid directly out from the protocol and then do critical tasks such as uh, risk assessment and collateral onboarding related uh, work or technical maintenance of the protocol um, or things like community management and governance facilitation. And then also potentially like you know, more exotic things like decentralized marketing or something like that could also be the case. But um, so that's the, that's the elected pay contributors, right? That's, that's kind of the people that's necessary to replace, um, like, to keep, to keep the momentum of the project going without the foundation. And then we got the, the MIPs, the Maker improvement proposals. So the mega improvement proposals uh, are go is it's a set of it's basically these proposals that um, you know that have logic in them that outlines all the different processes in the system. Um, and then there needs to be all of it, the, like there needs to be a complete. Um, um, set of myths in place to the point where all the different what we call the problem space is fully covered so that there's a process in place for you know collateral onboarding, there's a process in place for emergency response, there's a process in place for synthetic assets onboarding. there's a process in place for like hiring and firing the electric paid contributors and so on. There's, and, and there's already a, a proposed list of this problem space that's going to change over time as the community redefines it. But ultimately, what that means is that the community should have a process and sort of like a, a, have already thought about all the different critical issues that it needs to consider, right? So we don't want to run into a situation. We want to minimize the chance that once the foundation is gone, the community suddenly finds itself in a situation that it has absolutely no idea what, like there's no precedence. There's no, no, uh, there was no proactive thinking done about it beforehand, and so on, right? Like, that's, a, that's not a, a good situation to be in if you have a fully decentralized project. You kind of want to have as much as possible uh, defined beforehand because that's, that's how you can come to a consensus even if you're a very, very big group of people, right? You, if you have to make some complex, complex decision, it's very important to have a process to rely on to, to arrive at that decision. Um, and, and so that's the process layer, right? So we have people with the elected pay contributors and we have process with the MIPS and then actually the final thing we need are the what i call the politics basically like what we need is the the glue essentially that can help all, because i mean on one hand like the, in the end a decentralized community and a decentralized project is always made up of individuals right so it's always made up of you know whether it's thousands or hundreds of thousands of of you know blockchain nodes you know or people and companies and assets and so on right but but ultimately um there has to be this 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 you know level of interaction and sort of like a shared vision and agreement and and also the ability to reach compromise when there isn't total perfect agreement right and that's um, and that's what become that's kind of what politics is about right it's it's um, it's being able to sort of agree when you don't agree i guess you can say right um and and uh, right now the problem is that uh so the like so the, what what we what the great the, the way we like the foundation aims to overhaul is is that right now um the final decisions when the final decision when it's not exactly clear what to do is actually made by the mpr whales right so it's these basically the people that hold a lot of NPR are the ones that are able to to uh, sway um, votes when when there isn't just a clear outcome right when there's just a clear best choice and uh, that's, a, that's a bit of a problem because it's, it, it means that if you're a smaller careholder, holder, you, you have a limited ability to, to have any sort of impact on the big decisions. And that even sometimes means that you have, that decisions get made that don't really have the weight of evidence behind them simply because um, the whales that vote for it maybe don't even read all the you know, time. Like the community might be having tons and tons of discussion around a particular decision and then in the end, you have someone with a lot of MKR but who didn't actually participate that much. And so the solution to this problem is the vote delegation. So basically allowing both large MPR holders to delegate their votes to someone who's going to be more active if they're not going to be completely um, following everything, like following uh, in you know, great detail. Um, but also something to allow the smaller MKR holders to pool their votes and then actually have an impact on governance. Because in the end, while the whales it, they, like, have a big sway on the governance process right now, the reality is actually that the small voters is the biggest voting bloc. It's just not organized. And that's where vote delegation is gonna be a, a, a big factor.
0: I look forward to having my name in the hat as a, uh, perhaps a delegate for the MKR politics system. Um, switching oh, gears. <laughs> yeah, One day. Uh, switching gears real quick. Uh, Something that has always been in the back of my mind and perhaps in the back of MakerDAO's mind is DAI's independence from the dollar. Uh, I remember this being discussed very frequently at the very beginning of my my entrance into crypto, but I see this being discussed less and less. So I kind of want to resurge that topic of conversation. Uh, the dollar is a very useful thing for a stablecoin to peg itself to because then you don't have to do a lot of Work with defining what stability is you just use the dollar to define what stability is uh, If I remember correctly It's always been in maker vision to have some sort of independence from the dollar as a stability reference point uh, Can you talk about or comment on where that that? Uh, that endeavor is
2: Yeah, so actually um An interesting fact is that, um, so originally the stablecoin was called the E-dollar. So at the very beginning, um, it was meant to be pegged to the dollar and it was called the E-dollar and it was going to be like very simple, you know, it's called E-dollar, it's a dollar and so on. Then actually what happened next is that we realized, um, well, we just like realized it would be cool to have something that's even more independent and even more stable and so on. Um, So that's why we changed the name to die, also to kind of like signify that it's, it's not tether for instance right it's not usd tether it's it's not like usd something in a bank account right it's it's a completely different asset that's that sort of exists entirely on the blockchain right so we, we call it some we gave it a unique name but then as we did that we also uh started experimenting with what if we don't pay it to the dollar what if we peg it to an international kind of, like what if we you know instead of a national currency what about if it was an international currency right and so we look at the um, the special drawing rights which is this basket of currencies uh designed by the imf in order to facilitate so that's how the like that's how the imf does international loans it denominates them in the sdr um and uh, so that sounded really great to us and, and that meant that Dai could be this like cool international stablecoin thing and that seemed like a really cool niche to have because then you would assume that such a stablecoin would be a really good currency to, to sort of do international trade with, and to for instance be, stand in the middle of, let's say, um, if you want to trade from dollars to let's say uh Korean one or something, right? Then maybe you'd want to go through dollars to the SDR and then to one, and then you could get a better exchange rate or something because it's you know because it's kind of pegged to both instead of just being pegged to the dollar, but and it, so. The long and short is that it turns out that the SDR is actually a very badly designed currency basket. So it actually it's just not very, yeah, like it. Basically, the, the composition of the SDR is not based on how to get the optimal international liquidity. It's more like based on, I guess, something like a political struggle between some of the big countries or something. So so it turns out the dollar is actually. Uh, even like it's better than the SDR when it comes to international liquidity, even though it's a national currency and not an international basket.
1: Dollar is mean, better than everything. We're learning that pretty, <laughs> pretty quickly here.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but um, so now, so, but basically at the same time, um, so what happened is that we said, okay, we have to then peg the die to the dollar because it would be foolish to do the SDR when it's not, it's not, like it's just not worth it because it doesn't even have an advantage over the dollar but we still do want die to be something sort of that really is fully independent right like that really is um uh like decentralized right and like it's autonomous and so on um so um so we kept, we kept the name die for instance right and and um what's and basically so in the short run what's happening is is this we there's going to be this new feature called synthetic assets that has already been, you know, the community has known about this for years at this point. And of course it's taking a long time for it to actually come out, but it, it, it is uh, going to, to be available relatively soon. And what that will allow uh, the community to do is to basically just, um, uh, you know, deploy more versions of Dai that are pegged to other assets than just a dollar because, uh, you know, the, the goal of, of the project is to, to make blockchain and stable coins re- you know, relevant for regular people and actually make it something that's useful in the real world.? Right? And the problem is that, while the dollar is great, actually in most countries, the dollar is still just a, a weird foreign currency that they don't really want to deal with on a day-to-day basis, right? So you actually want to be able to have people use their own local currency. Um, if they are going to a, a blockchain, right, there, there can be big barriers to entry. Um, so that's why you want to be able to, to do local currency, and once you once that's in place, so once the maker community has is able to maintain all these different currencies, right? All these different versions of die. So you have euro die, yen die, and so on, right? Canadian die, and so on. And at some point, it might, you know, it it may just be the case that for whatever reason in the future, the U.S. dollar may not may not uh, be this like the, the, the optimal international currency anymore. Even though, I mean, certainly the current crisis seems to, to show that that's still going to be the case for a while. Um, but at some point, that may not be the case anymore. And then at that point, um, in, a, in a world where there's many different versions of DAI, it would be quite easy, easy for the make community to simply, um, like, to redefine what DAI is, and then just introduce the US dollar die. So simply say that, yeah, we also have a, a dollar pegged, die just like we have a europec die and so on and then the the stable fund is just called die which would then be like the global die right could then uh in the end be be managed in some completely uh, unique way maybe it could be a currency basket designed uh, specifically by maker governance
1: i think the best person that described this vision of breaking dies dependence to the dollar was Parker Lewis on a podcast that we had and he said it sounds like the maker team and, and community communities trying to do to the dollar what the U.S. government and the Fed did to gold. Peg to it and then ultimately cut you know kind of cut the tie once liquidity has gotten to the point where it could sustain itself. Do you do you uh is that characterization correct to you? Or-
2: I would, I would say not really, because I don't, I mean, well, on one hand, I guess you can say from sort of a, maybe from like an ideological perspective, you could say so, uh, if you think of, of Maker still as being like a, a project that has its roots in, in, you know, the early blockchain ideology. But on the other hand, like the way that Maker governance is meant to, to function, right, is to be, have a, like the focus needs to be on real world needs right and the practical application of the technology so in practice it's really a question of is the do, you know is the dollar the, the best thing to be pegged to that that's going to be the most useful for the users of the system um then it will be the dollar right if the dollar is is, is works as it's supposed to work um and or, or rather like if it maintains its current status then die will be you know the mega-governance will, will be best off uh, pegging die to the dollar, right? And that's how the users will be best off as well. But if the dollar fails to, to uh, live up to that rule, or for some reason the dynamics of international currencies change over time, then there is, I mean, there's absolutely no, I guess you can say, you know, there's no way that the, the mega-governance is locked in to pegging it to the dollar, right? So, so, um, so it's like, I mean, DAI is using the dollar while that's the best option. And I'm sure, I I believe that that bigger governance would be happy to continue to do so as long as it works. But basically the moment that it stops working, there shouldn't be anything forcing it to continue to be that way.
0: Ready to move on, Christian? so ruin we re- we recently had Nick Carter on the podcast, and I keep on citing this on the podcast because I keep on chewing on it. but Nick Carter came on and and illustrated Bitcoin as a political system. Bitcoin is this vehicle or this mechanism for expressing one 's values or an expressing an opinion about one 's values on the world, so like if you buy bitcoin you are you believe in that. Money is, is, should be this. Uh, no one should have the access to the money spigot. Everyone has, believes in property rights. There are certain sets of values that are instantiated in the way that the Bitcoin crypto economic system is designed. And I believe that's also true for Ethereum. And I think we can also extend this to MakerDAO. Any crypto economic system has a set of values that it instantiates. And I think MakerDAO really comes in third when it comes to the size of a crypto economic system, like there are plenty of other blockchains out there like Litecoin and EOS, but we don't really count those as crypto economic systems because mainly because of the fees that they don't generate. But MakerDAO does generate a lot of fees. There is a crypto economic liveliness to MakerDAO. Um, so do you think that MakerDAO does instantiate values and what are those values?
2: And to me, it's very clear um, that. Um, you know it's about harnessing the technology of, of blockchain and basically I guess financial technology and making that available to everyone right on, a, on an equal basis so it's a you know it's about inclusion it's about uh, fairness um, and, uh, and also and actually the what we really like to describe the ideal of Dias is it's an unbiased currency an unbiased world currency right um, both when it comes to things like access to, to savings and you know, access to, to transactions and, and so on, right, for everyone and not just the people that can pass KYC with a bank, but also when it comes to access to credit, which is that like maybe, you know, that's also a part, like a, an aspect of Mega that is so uh, revolutionizing, right, because right now credit, it's, it's one of the most powerful tools that exist in the world, right? It's kind of what makes the world go around but, but the way credit works today is that it's very much based around, yeah, the Fed kind of like, and then the, you know, the, the, the super privileged banks that can have a, get credit directly from the Fed, and then the relation, you know, then, and then the next layer of relationships, and then you get out to sort of the small business at the very end that has to go through, I don't know, it's not even possible to count how many middlemen you have to go through as a small business before you sort of reach the Fed as a counterparty, right? Um, so that just means that the, the nature of the current system is that the large play, players have a massive advantage and the small players are at a disadvantage because of the fundamental structure of the, of the system. And uh, with Maker, it's really about changing that structure into something where everyone has the same direct access to the core of the system. Right? Everyone should have the, like everyone and any type of collateral and any type of user should be able to access DAI directly, right, and be able to access uh, vaults directly. Uh, and be able to access the governance process directly, either as, as um, uh, you know, people who come and propose things to the governance process, or even people who participate in it.
0: So how has the social contract of MakerDAO emerged? How has these uh, opinions about what MakerDAO is, how has that conversation developed over time?
2: Well, it's I mean, it's basically been happening in our own little community and, and forums, right? So, um, uh, I mean, in the early days, it, there was a lot of, of, I guess you can call it, philosophical debate on the governance calls. Nowadays, I don't think it's very philosophical, right? It's very much practical. Um, but but it, it really is rooted in, in those early days. And, and one thing that I think is, is interesting to highlight about the social contract is that it did start off being quite a bit more uh, ideological and radical than it is now. But basically, over time, what happened was that as we started going into basically the, the actual operations and sort of the actual nitty gritty of how do we then do the risk management, how do we then keep the stability at scale, um, what became clear was that um, while it sounds really great to, to think about this, you know, think about like a, what I guess I would call like a decentralization maximalist stablecoin, right? So, a stablecoin that's only backed. by by assets that's sort of considered decentralized from some sort of, you know, binary perspective, that either you're decentralized or you're not. Um, And then the problem was basically that about, you know, basically around the time of the DAO hack, actually, when basically there was kind of like this moment where uh, collectively um, reality sets in for a lot of, you know, a lot of the Ethereum ecosystem, right, had to sort of reevaluate many of their core beliefs. And in the mega community that this... Uh, discussion was around, you know, the fact that all crypto is correlated, right? And all the decentralized assets—they all have the same kind of business model, which is, you know, a transaction network that takes transaction fees. And so the problem is that they're all going to fall together, and that means that, unfortunately, it's simply not scalable to take the approach of saying we're going to build something that's totally detached from governance and legal systems, right? Um, but instead, to be able to scale. And then and through that actually reach like true decentralization at scale, you have to instead figure out a way to integrate with the real world right? and integrate with, with governments and integrate with legal systems, but in a way where like in a way where you do that safely. Right. So you're still employing the best practices of, of risk management and even decentralization, right, which is then, um, you know, achieved through basically just um, maximizing diversification across custodians and jurisdictions.
1: Yeah, so uh, we touched on this uh, like right at the beginning, which is uh, this recent thing that happened, uh, what, a month ago, Black Thursday, they're calling it, is when all crypto prices and all global asset prices uh, went down close to 50% in one day um, there was corresponding fireworks within the ether, or within the maker, uh, the maker system. Can you kind of walk through what was happening in your head as that was kind of going on, and what did you learn about the maker system from that?
2: Yeah, I mean, so to recap, right? So what happened was that Ethereum well, all crypto prices dropped significantly, and then Ethereum had this uh, massive congestion at the same time because everyone was rushing to, to sell their ETH to do transactions. And then what that cost was basically, essentially all services in Ethereum stopped really functioning the way they would normally function, right? Because almost, almost nobody were able to to um, get their transaction processed within a reasonable amount of time. And then in the maker protocol, that actually caused, um, that enabled, uh, keepers that are these actors, like external actors in the system that normally is supposed to help with uh, maintaining the stability of the system when there are liquidation, so basically when collateral has to be sold off in order to keep the system solvent and so unfortunately um, what happened was that they they started breaking down and and to the point where um there were so few left that they started like it stopped being a competition between the keepers to actually bid and and there was you know. So there was a fair market around the value of this collateral being sold, and instead, uh, two of them would simply just bid zero for everything, and then they would actually win that because even though, obviously, um, it would be a good deal to try to bid, you know, slightly more than zero still if you're getting, um, you know, if you're getting a lot of ETH, but no one was simply able to get those transactions mined, right? And actually, there was a lot of other factors as well. So there was also this issue that everybody wanted die and nobody wanted to generate die with ETH. So there was also a liquidity shortage of ETH. Um, and yeah, I mean, I one of the things that was cu- quite, uh, you know, just um, just very unfortunate, right? There was really this perfect storm of cascading uh, prob- or like cascading factors that all created this issue. And, and what was very ironic is that just a few weeks earlier, um, the community had been, like, uh, there's been this, like, this, this uh, you know basically this like um the show of community governance where the community had decided to activate what's called the governance security module which is that which is this time delay that goes on governance decisions in the system which makes the system more robust in in many situations because it's a good idea to make sure that there's amount of time to scrutinize the decision before it actually gets executed right but then unfortunately because that but, but unfortunately there's also some downsides to that, right? So because it had just passed and this, this security module just had been activated and creating this extra level of, like, this extra time to make decisions, that basically meant that someone, you know, someone like me or, or the governance community in general were totally powerless in this situation, right? Because there was no, because we, we were seeing the zero the bits happening, right? I mean, I, I was seeing it on my, I was sitting there watching it on my computer but there was nothing to do, right? Because even if uh, the voters came together and, and some proposals voted through and, and the parameters would change, so, it would be, you know, so for instance, it would be more than 10 minutes to make a bid. But the problem was that that change would only take effect 24 hours later. Um, so actually there was a reaction from governance, right? And there was um, uh, like uh, reactive changes made from the governance side. But they, yeah, they didn't take effect until after the whole event was over, unfortunately.
0: I think the main thing that I've been thinking about as a result of the MakerDAO Black Friday thing that happened is is what is an attack? What is fair? What is a breakdown in code? Because there was nothing about the MakerDAO code that that there was no bug in the code. There was no exploit. Uh, you could you could argue that. The, the purchaser of the collateral was paying fair market value because no one else was bidding on it. Um, you, then, so what, how do you think about these things when it comes to like, were these people actually victims? Was there actually an attack? Was there actually an attacker? Uh, was there a failure in Maker, the MakerDAO system? Uh, like, how do you think about this?
2: I mean, well, I mean, I think it is fair to say that the protocol didn't fail, right? The code didn't fail. And and I mean, and that, I guess that's a, like, that is actually a good thing, right? That, that um, I mean, if there had actually been an an actual bug in the code that allows someone to steal money out of the system directly, uh, that would be an even more serious issue, right? Mm-hmm. But But what this was, was a breakdown of the ecosystem that the protocol expects to exist, right? So basically the, the protocol itself works, worked as intended, but the actors that were supposed to interact with it basically, you know, were not able to operate in that extreme environment um, that was that was uh, happening at the time. So um, I mean, it's just a very, it's kind of like just a very complicated, complex situation, right? There's so many factors coming together, again, including the fact that if it had happened just a few weeks earlier. Uh, the governance community would have just immediately reacted to change of parameters and, like, that would have never been an issue at all.
1: Well, you call that the, the centralization would be able to have made a, a, a quick change, right? Or would this still have to be voted on and all that kind of stuff? Like, what does what – like, whenever I hear, like, we can make a quick change, that indicates kind of, like, centralization to me.
2: Well, I mean, so we would still have required, required votes, that 's for sure, but in this kind of situation, I mean um, it is like the MKR holders are on, on one hand there's a lot of talk about uh, voter apathy in the, in the maker community um, but that's kind of that's like the thing is that the voter apathy in maker relates to how I guess you would say how boring the votes are right so for really boring stuff, yeah inches, not a lot yeah not a lot of people vote really if it's just like some routine stuff, you actually don't see that many people voting, but when you have situations where you know real uh, uh, critical things are happening or being decided on, you do see a lot of voter turnout, and you even do see very fast reactions. So um, I, I think that it, you know, it would have, in that situation, um, it would have been quite easy to get, uh, get a lot of NPR voters to react immediately.
0: I've always considered that voter apathy is actually a decent signal for consensus. Uh, because if you see a vote going through that you approve of I and mean, you haven't voted yet, you are very much not incentivized to vote. Um, do you align with that?
2: Yes and no, because it's, yeah, it's, simply, it's just not that simple, right? Because it depends on the situation, right? Because sometimes, I mean, uh, in a situation where you simply didn't know the vote was happening, or you didn't, I don't know, I guess you didn't have the, the tools or resources to participate easily or something, then it might be you disagree with the outcome, but you just can't do anything about it. And in that case, it's not, it doesn't, you know, it, it might look like consensus, but it isn't, right? Even if there's not that many votes against. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, if it's like, if, um, I mean, and that's actually why I, like, I think it really is like the votes that actually matter are the no votes. It's not the yes votes, right? Like if if everybody has the fair opportunity to vote no and they don't, then it actually doesn't matter how many people vote yes, right? As long as it's, well, I mean, and actually when we originally like um, playing around with the, with the governance designs of the system in the very early days, there were actually like, there were these designs that were not even, that didn't even have the concept of yes votes, basically. Where it really was, you can, you propose something and then it either goes through or it gets, it gets stopped. Um, and practice, it is, I mean, yes votes are also important signals, right? I mean, in practice, it is better to have a lot of yes votes than to have a few, um, but, but, uh, but yeah, like it is, like it, you know, if you don't have a lot of people, if you've given people the opportunity to say no and they don't, that is the most important thing in governance.
1: Rune, so kind of like recapping what happened on Black Thursday, it it really kind of shows that there are unexpected um, complexities that can happen with the smart contracts in areas that were, you know, that should have been planned for and just could not have been planned for because uh, a, a perfect black swan could occur at any time. I guess now that you are looking at what happened a month ago and. Um, where maker is right now, what do you think are the big what do you think are the biggest threats external threats to maker um, moving forward Well,
2: so I mean the thing is it's it is just very hard to say because yeah it's like I mean I guess you can say that the sad thing is that um, the direction that governance was taking and, and sort of the, like all the all the initiatives that are coming. Would have basically fixed the issue in the first place, right, because the problem for instance, the problem was that there was not enough dial liquidity right and and uh, that was because uh, the community just hadn't been able to do collateral onboarding at that time yet right they were still getting ready for that it was, it was, a, it was a, you know it takes a lot of effort to really get a a scalable and, and decentralized process in place, so that process simply wasn't in place yet, so collateral onboarding hadn't just did not occur yet and for that reason there was this liquidity issue with that which wouldn't have happened for instance i mean i would i would guess if, if it had been three months later then the then usdc probably would already have been in as a collateral type or at least some other crypto or at least you know some assets like tokenized gold or something um that that are somewhat uh, uncorrelated with eth and um yeah so so that's you know so that's one thing that's that's quite frustrating, right, that um, it simply was, a, it was simply a matter of, like, not just the perfect storm of all the external factors, but also the fact that it hit, I mean, get basically right at the point where the governance security module had just been activated, but collateral onboarding and, and you know, like, the, the Keeper ecosystem as a whole had not, um, like, had not grown to, to a point where it could handle uh, just, like, a perfect storm of that magnitude.
0: I have one last question for you before we wrap up. Uh, there's been a lot of debate in the Ethereum world, mainly from the Ethereum maximalists, that uh, Ether should always have this privileged role inside of, of MakerDAO as a collateral. Um, so, in your opinion, does Ether deserve a special place as collateral due to it being the native asset of the platform that MakerDAO depends on? And how do you view the role of the relationship between Ether and MakerDAO?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I actually think that can, I can, re- Relate that a little bit to the whole the, the, the conversation around uh, the US dollar and the peg, right? So in the end, the thing is that Maker isn't even fundamentally tied to Ethereum, right? You could, have a, you could theoretically imagine the entire DAO and protocol migrating to some other blockchain and so on, right? And, you know, every time I go to conferences, I get, like, you know, these, like, <laughs> I get all these, like, uh, people coming up to me and trying to convince me, hey, Rune, you know? Can you make? Can you take Maker to my blockchain? Right, which is so ridiculous, right? But it's kind of like a fun example of how, like, um, I mean, it has always been the goal of Maker that the project should expand beyond just one blockchain; it should be available in every blockchain. Um, and uh, and so that could theoretically mean that one day Maker might operate on ten different blockchains. And the signif- and, and Ethereum over time just ends up. Not having any activity for whatever reasons, right? But just because it's not able to compete with the other blockchains or something like that. Um, so, so like, uh, and then and and then when it comes to valuing, so th- I mean, so that's one thing. So that means that there's no fundamental reason why Ethereum would always be the native and sort of the core blockchain of. Um, I mean, I'm not saying. I mean, well, I don't think fundamental reasons, right? But there's no, there's no like. I guess there's just no like dogma around it or something, right? Like it, it, you know, maker governance is free to to decide to, to not have maker operating on Ethereum if they really wanted to, right? And so from that perspective, there's also no, you know, so then when you look at ETH from the collateral perspective, then that basically means that you do have to value, like you have to base it on the value of ETH, right? Because the goal of the system is to create a stable coin first and foremost, right? That maximizes the utility of the users and the stability of the system. Um, um, so, so I don't. I mean, so I, so I think, sort of from a dogmatic, dogmatic perspective, it doesn't make sense to, to uh, give special significance to Ethereum. But that doesn't matter because, from like a objective, sort of rational risk management perspective, Ethereum is just a really, really great collateral type, right? It's like it really is the perfect collateral for for a decentralized stablecoin because it's so it's a huge and it's has such a big market cap and you know, it has, um, that's where all the, I mean, to the conversation around like Maker going to another blockchain in practice, it's not going to happen because everyone's on Ethereum already, right? That's the way the network is. So it's very like, one thing is one project moving to another blockchain. But the thing is that what would actually have to happen is the entire DeFi network would have to to sort of coordinate to move to another blockchain. And that's just not going to happen. and uh, so, so I mean, I don't think that Ethereum needs some sort of you know special relationship or special significance uh, with Maker. It doesn't require that because ETH is just has such a powerful fundamental value proposition that um, as long as Maker governance is, is rational and, and is pursuing you know um, objective uh, you know scientific as we sometimes call it um, risk management then Ethereum will have a very prominent place in the portfolio, that's for sure.
0: Ruin. I want to thank you for coming on to POV Crypto and giving us your time. If people want to participate in Maker Governance, follow you, follow what you are doing, and join the Maker Ecosystem, what should they do?
2: Yes. Yeah, so we have um, our, our, our Reddit. Uh, Reddit.com slash R slash MakerDAO. That's a, that's a good place to to... to pop in and uh, interact with the community and um, then we have our forums so that's forum.maker.com and that's a very that's really the place to be. if you really want to go deep the forum is actually where maker governance like happens and decision-making actually happens and it's actually quite amazing to see because you can see like uh, little ideas starting on the forum and then becoming an actual uh, governance poll and then ultimately being voted through and it could be some random person that came up with the idea in the first place and the community just goes with it because the idea itself is good. Right? So I think that's a really good place to look at. And then we have um, we have the chat, which is also a great place to interact with with the uh, you know the real like the core community and really uh, asking questions and, and so on. So that's chat.mega.com. And then if you just want to follow the project for like regular updates, you can follow us on the foundation controlled Twitter, the Mega Foundation controlled Twitter account, which is. Um, just add Megadon.
0: Wonderful. Thanks, Rune.
1: Thanks a lot, Rune. Uh, you can follow the show at POV CryptoPod. You guys make sure to give us those five star reviews. We're still working on the March to 100. So help us get there. We're so close.
0: You can follow me at Trustless Date, both on Twitter and on Bankless. You can follow the podcast at POV CryptoPod. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. All right. We can call it.